All right, so we are finishing this series. It's been a five-part series. This is the last one on gospel culture. And if maybe this is your first time here, um, you're going to get a little bit of a um, concentrated dose of gospel culture quotes. Sorry, you know, probably by... uh, in most homiletics classes, you're not supposed to like give a dump of quotes at the beginning, but I'm going to do that anyway. Um, so this book is super helpful. It's called The Gospel, How the Church Portrays the Beauty of Christ. And this is my last shot to, to quote it for a while. So I'm going to give several quotes from this. And it'll also serve as a good reminder of what this series is all about. And it'll set the table for what we're going to consider in Galatians chapter 6. So Um, Ray Ortland is the uh, author of this book, and he writes these quotes. I'll kind of run through them with a couple comments in between. So gospel doctrine creates gospel cultures called churches, where wonderful things happen to unworthy people for the glory of Christ alone. But it doesn't end in our churches. A gospel-defined church is a prophetic sign that points beyond itself. It is a model home of the new neighborhood Christ is building for eternity. People can walk into this kind of church right now to see human beauty that will last forever. Such a church makes heaven real to people so that they can put their faith in Christ now while they still have the chance. So we've talked a lot and primarily about internal culture, right? The dynamics within the family of faith. And that's still going to be in focus this morning. But we should note with that quote that our internal culture will be the culture that the world sees when they come in contact with us. So what kind of culture does the gospel create? Second quote. The gospel does not hang in midair as an abstraction. By the power of God, the gospel creates something new in the world today. It creates not just a new community, but a new kind of community. Gospel-centered churches are living proof that the good news is true, that Jesus is not just a theory, but is real, as he gives back to us our humanness. In its doctrine and culture, words and deeds, such a church makes visible the restored humanity only Christ can give. So our text for this morning in Galatians 6 is one example of the new kind of community that the gospel creates. Ortland goes on, we either proudly believe that we are too good to be judged or we proudly believe we are too bad to be saved. Sometimes we can toggle back and forth between those two. So the gospel is a continual surprise and we need to hear it again and again. So that's not just a first-time need. That's an ongoing need because we can have an inner Pharisee that will kind of crop up (laughs) and we need to be reminded that we are not too good to be judged. And we can also beat ourselves up and beat ourselves down. And we need to be reminded that we're not too bad to be saved. So we need to continue to hear the gospel that shapes the culture in the church. And again, Galatians 6, 1 and 2 speaks to this directly. So you and I need to hear it and we need to help each other hear it. Okay? So not only do we hear from Jesus, we also hear the voice of Jesus, the truth of Jesus from his people. All right? So we should all expect, right? This series has been actual but also aspirational. 
Like none of us have arrived. Our church certainly hasn't arrived. We never will this side of the return of Jesus. We should all expect that we need to change and grow. So a couple more quotes. The primary barrier to the ministry of the gospel through your church is not out in the world. It's really easy to fall into this kind of thinking that all the threats are out there. And certainly there are threats out there. Primary barrier to the ministry of the gospel through your church is not out in the world. The primary barrier is within your church itself. Every church, to some extent, clogs and hinders the gospel, even as we intend to advance the gospel. So each one of our churches should examine itself, and individually we should examine ourselves. Then we should make every adjustment, however painful, however embarrassing, however controversial, out of love for the Lord Jesus Christ. He will honor our courage because it springs from faith. And then he quotes Francis Schaeffer, who wrote... The central problem of our age is not liberalism or modernism, and he wrote this like, I don't know, 70 years ago, or maybe maybe a little less than that, 60, 50 years ago. The central problem of our age is not liberalism or modernism, nor the threat of communism, nor even the threat of rationalism and the monolithic consensus which surrounds us. All these are dangerous, but not the primary threat. The real problem is this, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, individually and corporately, tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than of the spirit. Isn't that what Galatians is all about? The central problem is always in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances surrounding them. And then one final Ortland quote, if we do not show beauty in the way we treat each other, then in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of our own children, we are destroying the truth we proclaim. We are, we've said it this way repeatedly, we are undermining the gospel that we proclaim rather than adorning and illustrating the gospel we proclaim. It's in our churches that the gospel is field tested for real life. If people want to know what the gospel creates, are they being unfair to look to a church? I don't think so, especially when the Lord Jesus said, they will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. Okay, so, all right, actual in seed form, We're all in kindergarten here, aspirational, lots of room to grow. Let's grow together. So coming on the heels of Galatians 5, particularly Galatians 5, um, 26, hold on, 5, 25 and 26, um, the point of these two verses that we're going to consider this morning You know, again, let's just look back at the end of chapter five. We looked at this last week. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, looking down on one another with contempt or envying one another. So superiority complex, inferiority complex, and conflict as a result, okay? So coming on the heels of five, 25 to 26, the point is that Christians are not in any way to compete with one another but rather love and support and watch out for and help one another. We've been accepted. We belong by sheer grace through faith in Jesus, God's family. We got nothing to prove. No reason to have a superiority complex. And there's no reason to be paralyzed by an inferiority complex. The gospel actually makes us both humble and secure, competent. Okay, so we don't have anything to prove. We don't have to be better than anybody else. 
And even if somebody has a different gift or a gift we wish we had or they're more gifted or whatever, hey, that's God's doing. Praise God. And I'm accepted just as much as them. So I don't have to feel inferior here. So it actually primes us and empowers us to love other sinners saved by grace with humility and security. So characteristics of gospel culture in Galatians 6, 1 and 2, our passage for this morning, three, restore, guard, bear, okay? Those are the three points for this morning, restore, guard, bear. So let's look at the first one, restore. Point number one, verse number one. Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So just perhaps it goes without saying, but I will note that the Greek word for brothers here, as is often the case in the New Testament, is used to refer to brothers and sisters. Okay, it's used inclusively. So Paul's not just speaking to the men of the church. So just worth mentioning that. So brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression... Does a question come to mind? If anyone is caught in any transgression, like, in what sense, Paul, do you mean caught? Does it mean if anyone is entangled in any transgression? Or does it mean if anyone is found out? You tracking? Everybody awake? Like, discovered in any transgression. It's a good question. I had hoped that, you know, I could look at the Greek and it would just be easily answered by looking at the original language. Unfortunately, no. Okay? It's actually possible it could go either way. I would say the likelihood leans a little bit in the direction of, like, as far as the use and connotation of this term elsewhere in the New Testament. Um, there sometimes are connotations of taken by surprise or caught off guard. So in other words, overtaken could be an accurate translation. So when it comes to getting entangled in sin, like you and me and temptation and transgression, here I think is the point. The world, the flesh, and the devil are not passive. The devil's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5. The world's value system creates a current, like a river, it's easy to get caught up in and carried away by. The flesh is deceitful and stubborn. Now, none of this means that we can blame shift. Okay, it doesn't mean when we sin, well, the devil made me do it. it. Doesn't mean we're helpless, unwilling victims when we sin. We are not victims of our circumstances when we sin. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is true. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability to bear. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So it doesn't mean that we can shift the blame and we're helpless victims when we sin. But it does mean that we've got to be on guard for ourselves and others. And sometimes we're going to get caught on our heels. It does mean that the flaming arrows come at us and make things hard in a hurry. Anybody? It does mean that we should be praying, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
Okay, so sometimes we, sometimes our brothers and sisters, get overtaken and entangled in sin. I do, you do. What then? Well, gospel culture, we're not the sin police. Put your badge away. The gospel culture vibe should not be, aha, gotcha. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You who are spiritual should restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness. So first, who are the spiritual ones? Is this like the spiritual elite? Like God's looking for a few good men and women, you know, to join the first class, you know? We're going to have a class system in the church. These are like the Navy SEAL Christians. You know, you can sign up on Planning Center in your app this week if you think you've got what it takes. No. Remember the context. In chapter 5, we considered this last week. Spiritual is those walking by the Spirit, not gratifying the desires of the flesh. Being led by the Spirit. So Galatians 5.16, 5.18. Those bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Not biting and devouring and characterized by the works of the flesh. And those keeping in step with the Spirit. 5.25. So none of that's going to be done perfectly, but sincerely, authentically. That's what it means to be spiritual. So those who are walking by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, the goal then of this restoration work is to get that brother or sister back in step with the Spirit. We are to restore one another. And that word for restore is used of rebuilding walls in Ezra 4. It's used of mending nets, like repairing fishing nets in Matthew 4. So our relationships with our brothers and sisters in the church are intended by God to be a means of correction and restoration and healing. And the manner in which we do this matters immensely. Brothers and sisters, if any is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness. Anybody remember the last time we heard gentleness? 523. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit. 523. So if you're spiritual, restore in this manner. It's a disposition that refuses to rejoice in someone's failure or I told you so. Has no interest in, in kind of backhanding people to get them back in line. We don't rejoice at people's downfalls or failures. We treat strugglers with dignity and humility and love. We seek to build them up, not tear them down in any way. So the vibe, the gospel culture vibe is not, get up, you idiot. I mean, imagine the church culture if that is the typical way we deal with sinners around here. Shaming people, haranguing them into changing. How, how well has that helped you in the past? How much has that helped you? No. Restore in a spirit of gentleness. So it's not a disposition of irritation or annoyance that I've got to deal with this idiot, thick-headed, stubborn person. Okay, maybe I'm exaggerating for the sake of the point, but uh, it could be seeds of this in our hearts, right? Good grief. I can't believe I have to 
I can't believe he can't. What's wrong with you? Even if you don't say these things, are they on the marquee in your mind? I could never do that. I could never say that. I could never think that. Need I say that this has some application in our parenting? Just a little insertion there and guilty. But more broadly, Tom Schreiner, um, New Testament commentator, scholar, um, wisely says this. Paul elaborates on what humility involves. One does not focus on the sins of others, provoking and discouraging them because they have fallen. Instead, those who restore the fallen remain humble because they remember their own fallibility and propensity to sin. They realize that they too may be tempted and fail. Today, they are reinstated one who has sinned, but tomorrow they may need to be reinstated. Recognition of one's own failures will keep believers from triumphalism or arrogance. I did not have this in my notes, but I think this may also be helpful. It's really easy to read others through the the lens of your strengths rather than the lens of your weakness. So where you tend to be really critical and like annoyed is in an area you're strong. And so you do this comparison, you're like, man, it's ridiculous. Well, what if you actually realize that you're not strong in every area across the board? So the way that you look at and deal with somebody who's struggling is not through the lens of your strength, but through, well, I've got this other weakness and look how slow I've been to learn and how many times I've been back, you know, dealing with this issue. And if you look at that person through the lens of your weakness, do you think that might change and impact the manner in which you deal with them? So no one-upsmanship, no condescension, no moral high ground attitude. So little kind of word picture here or, or illustration. If somebody breaks a bone and that bone needs to be reset, it is painful, right? But it's pain that heals, not a pain that destroys. So this restoration is kind of like, I mean, this passage in Galatians 1 is like another way of saying Matthew 18, first step. Like if your brother sins against you, go to your brother. And if he listens and repents, you won your brother. That's it. Okay. The goal is restoration again. Getting someone back in step with the spirit, restoring to spiritual health is the point. So it's often been said, get back to this broken bone idea. It's often been said that the church is a hospital for sinners, right? Amen. And like a good hospital, the church needs to be safe for sinners, but not safe for sin. Safe for the sick, not safe for the sickness. No good doctor is going to ignore something that's harming you. So there's this medical doctor um, named Michael S. Lundy who's also does some writing, and he wrote this. I read it um, a little while ago. Um, And he's commenting on John Owen and some other things. Anyway, so I think it'll make sense. John Owen warned of the danger of seeking and obtaining healing from the burden of sin through any means other than those appointed by God. He says that we can, after a fashion, find a kind of peace, but not one of God's making, but of our own construction. He means that in haste to find relief from the appropriate sense of guilt which sin brings, we are in danger of finding relief from the sense of sin 
without being delivered from the sin itself. Owen continues, don't imagine that this sort of peace comes from God. It will be well with us when we are fully attentive to all God's commandments. God will justify us from our sins. And that's what the gospel is all about. But he will not justify even the smallest sin in us. Right? Safe for sinners, not safe for sin. So self-help is, from a theological perspective, he writes, a bit of an, uh, of an oxymoron. It is our very self that needs healing. We can't do self-help. And it is the desire of our souls, ourselves, that renders us unfit to provide that help to ourselves apart from outside intervention. Again, the grace and truth of the gospel changing us. So again, God will justify us from our sins, but he will not justify even the smallest sin in us. He loves us too much. He's a good doctor. So when it comes to dealing with the sin of others, it is our glory to overlook an offense, Proverbs 19. But when someone is entangled and caught up in a pattern of sin, it is not loving to overlook or avoid that person and their sin. We should seek to restore that person and bring them back in line, keeping in step with the Spirit. So when we're called upon to confront or address sin, we do so gently in a spirit of gentleness. We're not better than them. We got to make sure we get the log out of our own eye before we can see clearly to point out the speck or help them pull out the speck from their eye. But when we do have the log out of our own eye, we can see clearly and we can approach humbly to help them remove the speck from their own eye. So gospel culture is restoration in the spirit of gentleness. Gospel culture is also willingness to confront. It's not avoidance or shrinking back out of fear of rocking the boat. You see that? So both of those dynamics are captured here, and they both just flow from the grace and truth of the gospel. Um, Tim Keller, many of you know, passed away on Friday. And boy, I owe an incredible debt to that man. I'm thankful for him. And he wrote this, Christians need to be neither quick to criticize nor afraid to confront. So I think one of the ways we see the gospel culture that we do want to cultivate is to almost take Galatians 6, 1 to 2 and flip it on its head. What would be the opposite and it'll help us see what, <laughs> what we're running from and what we're running to, what we're seeking to cultivate. Um, think of what happens in a church if sin is regularly ignored, left undealt with. Think about what happens in a church if when sin is dealt with, it's done so in a harsh, impatient, condescending way. I mean, I'm not gonna tease it all out. You can probably think of Lots of things that it can create. It certainly can discourage sinners. It can discourage future honesty. It can create people who do, like if, some people just like, well, that's the last time I share that. But you can also have people that are like, oh, I'm going to clean up my act and then I'm going to join the sin police squad. And I'm going to do this to other people. You see what I'm saying? So gospel culture is marked by safety for sin-sick believers, but it's not safe for sin. 
neither quick to criticize nor afraid to confront. So gospel culture, safety for sin-sick believers, not safe for sin. And as such, when you are dealing with sin, we got to watch ourselves. we got to guard ourselves. That's point number two. Point number two is short. Point number one is the longest. Point number three is a little bit longer than point number two, but not as long as point number one. Um, in case you're wondering how this is going. All right. So point number two, guard. Keep watch on yourself, lest you to be tempted. So you can actually extend this hospital metaphor here. There are contexts where doctors and nurses need to wear PPE. Everybody knows what that is now because of COVID, right? Personal protective equipment, is that right? Is that how? Okay, thank you. Um, because infection, like someone has an infection that's contagious and they need to, the, the medical personnel need to protect themselves as they care for the patient. Well, so also with us, in a sense. So how might we be tempted when we're seeking to restore a brother or sister caught in sin? Let me just give two examples, and I'll encourage you to ponder other scenarios where this could happen, how this could happen, maybe even discuss it in your community groups. So one way this, is, this could happen is the temptation to commit the same or a similar sin. For example, let's take sexual sin. Let's say your brother or sister comes to you, confesses to sexual sin, using internet porn. You listen well. You seek to restore that person in a spirit of gentleness, safe for the sinner. You know, it's the mercy of God. You're bringing this out into light. First John 1, 9 is true. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We want to walk in the light and not hide in the darkness. Like, thank you for sharing this with me. I am with you. I am for you. I'm an ally. Let's make war against this sin. So safe for the sin, but not safe. I'm sorry, safe for the sinner. Not safe for the sin. You don't allow your brother or sister to make excuses. Call your sin what it is. You know, you end up discussing gospel-saturated passages, putting sin to death, being filled by, led by the Spirit. But then you go home that night and your mind starts going. Because as you listened, this person was really honest, explained some of the gateways to their sin and pathways of their sin, maybe even mentioning a name of a porn star or a website. Maybe you heard of things you didn't even know were out there. And it piques your curiosity and you catch yourself and you kind of shake yourself out of it, but it keeps popping up in your mind. And two nights later, temptation grows and you end up doing an internet search and you get caught up in the same sin. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Second example of how this could happen. This is not a matter of falling into the same sin, but being tempted to sin because you're restoring another brother or sister. So you could care well for this person in a spirit of gentleness. Then you go home and you start to congratulate yourself on how well you helped this person and how humble you were. Or perhaps there have been several instances recently where you've been called upon to help people entangled in sin. And it's easier, it's easy to start thinking 
that you yourself are above this kind of entanglement and it starts to fuel the flames of pride and you, you may not look on that person with contempt, but you suddenly start to think of yourself in a higher spiritual class. Like you're in the helper class. They're in the struggler class. But we are warned in Proverbs, pride comes before the fall. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So, sum it all up. If any among you wander off the path, get caught in the thorns or the mud of transgression, you who are walking on the path, the path of love led by the Spirit, you who are spiritual, should help and rescue and restore that one to the path. That's what love looks like. But love can be dangerous, brings you close to the ditches, and you can fall in yourself. So be careful lest you also be tempted. So again, it might be helpful. Turn this thing on its head. What's the opposite? What's the opposite of this command? If we cultivated that in our church, ah, wouldn't be pretty. Helpers become transgressors. Perhaps our pride keeps us from being honest about it instead of vigilance, you know, being on guard. There's indifference and apathy and doctors and nurses start going down. Finally, let's look at the last point. We're gonna move from the specific to the general, okay? So bear is the last point, B-E-A-R, bear one another's burdens. This is the general command of which the command in verse 1 is a specific example. So the big umbrella is verse 2. The specific example is verse 1. Everybody tracking with me? Okay. So we're moving from the specific to the general in verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Restoring a brother or sister caught in sin is just one specific application of bearing one another's burdens. Some burdens are a result of sin which leads us to verse one. But many burdens are simply a result of life in this fallen world. There are financial burdens, health-related burdens, family problems, family burdens, emotional burdens, etc., etc. The church is full of burdens. I mean, if we could just see what's on everybody's back as they came in this morning, what would the collective weight of that be? Church is full of burdens because we all bear burdens. We are a burden-bearing people in this fallen world. Much of it certainly can be self-inflicted, but much of it can be inflicted upon us or can simply be the result of the curse, the brokenness, and the pain and the sorrow that fills this fallen world. So this language of fulfilling the law of Christ by bearing burdens recalls chapter 5. We looked at it last week. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Serve in love. Law fulfilled. Love neighbor as self. The law of Christ is the law of love. Remember Jesus, when he washed the disciples' feet, he said, a new commandment I give to you is John 13 that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Or Ephesians 4, 32 to 5, 1, or 5, 2. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. 
This is gospel culture, which means that we must focus on the gospel. More specifically than that, on the savior of the gospel, who is the great burden bearer. Jesus' shoulders are infinitely wide. Aren't you glad? Like if we're going to be empowered to bear any burdens, we can only bear burdens because he first bore ours and he continues to bear ours. So how did Jesus bear burdens? Isaiah 53 is just one wonderfully clear example. But before we consider it again, think, think about this with me. Why are we so quick to shift the blame? Why are we so committed to defending ourselves? Why are we so defensive? Why are we so quick to judge others and judge them strictly? Why are we so quick to excuse ourselves and generously and understandingly? It's because we can't bear the weight of our own guilt. So we try to avoid the weight landing on us because we know that it'll crush us. We don't need to bear the weight of our own guilt. Jesus bore that for us. You see how we need to keep preaching the gospel to ourselves? And how it sets us free from looking down or looking up, superiority, inferiority complex? Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions to bear those. He was crushed for our iniquities to bear those upon him. It was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And then it says at the end of the chapter that he bore our sins, the sins of many. So if he has borne our transgressions and paid for them, if he's even borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, if he was crushed so that we wouldn't have to be, and we guilty sinners that we are, are loved and accepted and beloved sons and daughters. We have nothing to prove anymore. We don't have to defend ourselves. We don't have to be defensive. We don't have to be quick to find fault in others. We can be quick to own our own sin, call it what it is. We don't have to shift the blame anymore. And it'll make us gentle when we deal with others who are caught in sin. If we try to bear the burden of our guilt and shame and failures, we will become insufferable people, self-righteous, critical, self-pitying, complainy. But if we believe the gospel, if we focus on the, the burden bearer who's taken our sin and cast it away as far as the east is from the west, we can become humble, gracious, grateful, content, loving people. Do you see how that works? So listen, he bore our sins and he continues to. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Like, let me shoulder this load. Cast your cares on me, I care for you. And then you've got some capacity to bear some other people's burdens. And you know what? Soon you're going to go through a patch where you've lost your footing and you need somebody else to come up underneath you and help you carry that load. We have infinitely broad shoulders bearing our burdens. And when he is bearing our burdens, we have bandwidth and strength and love and motivation to bear the burdens of others in love. So what burdens, like we can bear 
because he first bore for us and he continues to bear for us. What burdens of others does God want you to bear, to help bear? Financial, familial, the lonely, the hurting, etc. You usually can't help with a burden unless you're willing to come in close. Praise the sovereign burden bearer who came in close to take up our transgressions and sorrows and raise us up to be burden bearers by his love. It's his love that empowers our love. It's his burden bearing that enables us to bear our burdens and the burdens of others. So may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great burden-bearing shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip us with everything good that we may do his will, fulfilling the law of love, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen? Amen.